You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for the Washington Post. From meeting with Speaker McCarthy about the debt ceiling to a sit-down with the Congressional Black Caucus in the wake of the death of Tyree Nichols to preparation for Tuesday's State of the Union, it's been a big week at the White House. And who better to talk with about all of this than Tolu Olorunipa, White House Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. Tolu, welcome back to First Look. Hey, Jonathan. Good morning. It's great to be with you. All right, we're we're, we're going to talk about, or try to talk about all those things that I mentioned, but real quickly, huge news on, on the economic front. 517,000 jobs created in January, the unemployment rate the lowest in decades at 3.4%. You think there's popping champagnes at the champagne at the White House at this hour? They most certainly are. This is great news for President Biden, for his administration. They have been trying to calm the fears of a recession for quite a long time. They've been dealing with the Federal Reserve, which has been raising rates, hoping that that would not calm the job market or cool down the job market too much where we might see a number of job losses and so they have to take this number and just have just have to be happy with it in part because uh, it shows that the markets are uh, likely to continue to be strong uh, because people see a strong job market and that flows out to the rest of the economy so i do expect we'll hear from the president we'll hear from his uh, top officials later today about how proud they are of the job they're doing. It's They're gonna take credit for every job that was added in January and say that that starts off the year in a very positive note. And they likely believe that we'll continue along that line for the rest of the year, despite the fact that there are a number of people saying that we would be in a recession early in 2023. They're gonna take this number and say, this is the best evidence that that's not gonna happen. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that victory lap or laps just chew up all the time. I'm sure they will do that. Uh, all right, let's talk about this meeting that the president had um, that he hosted at the White House in the Oval Office with m- the leadership of the Congressional Black Caucus. This obviously uh, comes after uh, the president sent a delegation to the Tyree Nichols funeral. Vice President Harris uh, led that delegation. She spoke at the funeral. Um, here's what CBC Chair Congressman Stephen Horsford of Nevada said before the start of the meeting yesterday. The death of Tyree Nichols um, is yet another example of why we do need action. Uh, But you've already led on the action that we've been able to take through executive order. Uh, We need your help uh, to make sure we can get the legislative actions uh, that are necessary to save lives and to make public safety the priority that it needs to be for all communities. So I wanna thank you for that. Okay, so a very compelling shot there. I already talked about, you know, why they were there meeting with the president. But overall, what was the goal of that gathering? The goal was to keep at it and, and not give up when it comes to legislation on police reform, despite the fact that the numbers are stacked heavily against the Democrats. The Democrats are pretty united on the idea that there needs to be police reform. reform. They passed the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act last year out of the House. Uh, but now the House is run by Republicans and you haven't really seen any movement among Republicans uh, around the idea of reforming how policing is done in America. There were too many differences between the two parties to pass uh, police reform last year and in 2021 as well. And so it does appear that it's gonna be also too difficult to get things moving uh, when you look at what Republicans have been saying, saying things like, there's no law that could have stopped what happened to Tyree Nichols. We need to 
block uh, Democrats from trying to defund the police, turning this into a political issue uh, as we look into the potential of another re-election that has already started, uh, both at the presidential level and in, in the House. And so it doesn't appear that there is the support for policing reform. So I imagine that a number of these Democrats are going to be looking to the White House to see if there's more that they can do at the executive level, if there's more that they can do in trying to convince states and local communities to try to move laws and change laws on their own. Uh, but they have to show that they're not going to give up on this fight. And so that's part of what yesterday was about, having a meeting to show that they're going to continue to push for this, even though the numbers are stacked against them. That comprehensive answer totally blew out the follow-up question I was going to I was going to ask that gives us the opportunity to move to the the meeting that the president had earlier in the week with Speaker McCarthy. Um, they both appear to be singing from the same hymn book um, when it came to uh, what they're going to do or try to do concerning the debt ceiling. But am I reading that right? Did anything constructive come out of that meeting? Jonathan, the most constructive thing that came out of the meeting was the fact that they had the meeting and the fact <laughs> that they came out of it without, you know, throwing firebombs at each other, you know, saying that, you know, the other party in the meeting uh, was being disingenuous or was not being reasonable. So they said the right things. They said that they had a good discussion and a good conversation. And they both said that they believed that they would be able to get to an agreement to raise the debt ceiling. Now, you have to read between the lines because Republicans are saying an agreement means negotiation. It means that the Democrats are going to come to the table and talk about spending cuts and talk about how to rein in the, the spending of the federal government. Democrats, when they say agreement, they mean that they're just going to agree to raise the debt ceiling because they believe that once these bills have already been passed, these budgets have already been passed, raising the debt ceiling is an obligation of Congress just to pay for what has already been passed. And so they are talking from different, uh, you know, different playbooks in a way, even though they're singing from the same hymn book, as you said. And it will remain. It remains to be seen what Kevin McCarthy will be able to do when he goes back to his caucus uh, and has to deal with the very slim majority that he has, the very uh, very limited grip on power that he has with, uh, you know, members of the Republican caucus, you know, having to vote 14 and 15 times just to put him into that speaker's office and also saying that they would be willing to take him out of that office if he crosses them. Just one Republican member would be needed to uh, start a discharge position to get him out of office. And this is his biggest test with a debt ceiling. And so he faces a, a a more formidable battle and trying to get his caucus together. Democrats are largely united around the idea that the debt ceiling needs to be raised. We don't need to have all of these spending cuts to do it. And so it does remain to be seen what Republicans are going to do and how they're going to uh, come up with an agreement so that they can agree with Democrats and raise the debt ceiling to avoid the first default on the government's debt in the history of the country. And let's be clear. Um, tying the debt ceiling to future spending cuts does nothing to the debt that's already incurred. It's like going out to a fancy meal and saying, next time, I'll just eat less. Meanwhile, that bill is still hanging there. Um, yeah, they're, sing they're, they're singing from the same hymn book on this, but they're singing different hymns. Uh, let's talk about the State of the Union. Um, it's on Tuesday. Um, President Biden, it'll be the first time the president addresses Congress in the State of the Union in a Republican-controlled House with a Speaker McCarthy looming looming behind him. How might that di dynamic impact what we might hear from the president? I think we'll hear much less about what the president wants to do in Congress because he realizes that Republicans run the House and there's not going to be as much that he can get done legislatively. I think he's going to talk about 
what he did uh, over the first two years when when Democrats had unified control of Washington and they were able to pass a pretty aggressive and pretty expansive agenda. And he's going to be spending a lot of time trying to let the American people know about what he did and let the American know let the American people know that he's going to spend much of the next two years trying to implement those laws and celebrate those laws so that he can get credit for all the things that they did in the first two years. So I do expect this to be a major victory lap. He's going to talk about things like the fact that the job market continues to hum along, the fact that you know we just added a half million new jobs in January and the economic outlook continues to look pretty strong for the country with inflation slowing. And so he's going to take a victory lap. He's going to talk about things that he wants to get done uh, with the reality of Kevin McCarthy sitting behind him and likely not standing to clap when he says he wants to do things like expanding paid medical leave, expanding childcare, uh, adding new federal government programs that could be quite expensive. Uh, I don't expect uh, there to be much Republican support for those things, but the president is gonna be essentially kicking off his reelection in, in major ways by talking about the broad things that he's already done and the big things that he wants to do in the next two years and maybe in a second term as well. And, and, and real quickly, because again, you're really good at this anticipating what I'm going <laughs> to ask next. Um, in his final remarks as chief of staff, Ron Klain said, when Biden runs for re-election, that's a clear sign um, of the obvious. Uh, Brother Man Biden is going to run for re-election. My question real fast, has the White House tried to walk back the now former chief of staff's words? Not at all. They have totally been on board with the idea that President Biden is going to announce a re-election bid at some point in the next several weeks. They say that there's no rush to do it. He's not being pressured by any primary opponents. They feel like they're in a strong position, uh, but they're going to do fundraisers. They're going to be rolling out new policy ideas. They're going to be doing all the things that a presidential re-election would be doing if it was official, even though it hasn't been officially announced yet. So the fact that Ron Klain has sort of let the cat out of the bag, it's the biggest secret in the White House, but the fact that the president wants to run for re-election, he's already spoken to his family about this. And so we do expect that announcement to come in a matter of weeks, uh, but the, the White House and the president and the people close to the president say there's no rush to do this, that President Obama didn't announce his re-election until uh, April of 2011, the year before he was reelected. Uh, obviously, President Trump announced that he was running for reelection as soon as he was inaugurated. So that was a right. little bit of a different approach. But they say that they have time and that they believe that they have the support that they'll need to be able to run and to be able to win a second term. So anyone who read my column back in October knows for a fact that Joe Biden is going to run for reelection. But um, I'll save the patting of my own back for, <laughs> for later. Tolu Olarunipa, White House Bureau Chief for The Washington Post, thank you, as always, for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. You got it. Thanks, Jonathan. I'm going to keep the conversation going with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of The Washington Post, where we will find po Washington Post columnists Jennifer Rubin and George Will. Jennifer and George, welcome back to First Look. Nice to be here. Oh, great, George, your, your shot's working. There was a co concern that it wouldn't be up in time for the shot. So this is great, great that you are here. So I'm gonna throw this out to each of you. George, you go first. What should the president tell the American people Tuesday night? That the State of the Union is peachy keen because he's president and he can cite a few things. One is that inflation does appear to have uh, abated somewhat and the job creation machine of the American economy is in high gear. 
And that's most of what people care most about. He has two other problems. One is there's a considerable worry in the country about public safety crime, and there is a, a humanitarian crisis ongoing at the border. I don't know what he'll have to say about that, because what the federal government can do at this point is, is not clear, at least to me. Jennifer, what should the president tell the American people? I think he'll say those things. Um, the American people, as George knows all too well, usually aren't motivated much by foreign policy. But I think it would be a mistake to overlook um, the work that he has done in forging a united front uh, among Western democracies in defense of Ukraine. That is a extraordinary accomplishment. And although there's been some hiccups of late in uh, exactly what kind of uh, material we'll be providing uh, Ukraine, um, the flow of support continues. And I think, frankly, the fear that Republicans were going to somehow cut off uh, the uh, supply for Ukraine uh, was a bit uh, overblown. Uh, there's strong Republican support as well for this. So I think he'll do those things. And frankly, if he's smart, he'll probably roll out some kind of proposal that might steal the Republicans' thunder. He should come out with a crime proposal. He should come out with a border proposal. Uh, and he should come out with something uh, having to do with schools. Parents are legitimately worried after COVID that their kids are stressed and behind and that the schools are not being responsive to their needs. Hmm. All right. So that, that's actually a nice segue to the my follow-up question. Jennifer, you go first. What do the American people want to hear from the president on Tuesday? I think you sort of outlined three of them. Any others come to mind before I go to George on that? Well, I think the economy is always the number one issue. And although the economy is very strong, if you look at the responses, people think we're in a recession. Now, that be, may be our natural inclination now to see uh, the cloud around every silver lining. But I don't think the American people are feeling so great about the economy. And uh, I think the more time he spends on that, uh, reassuring them and really explaining what his infrastructure bill is doing and his chips bill are, is doing, uh, probably the better for him. George? Well, first we have to wonder how many are going to watch. Uh, the State of the Union has become, in my judgment, brace yourself for my annual diatribe here, has become, in my judgment, the most repulsive single item in our civic liturgy. It's a, it's a pep rally for the president's party. Both presidents do this. Uh, he says something they prove that they jump up and bray on their hind legs and then they sit down and, and it's, it's absolutely inappropriate but while I'm on the subject for the uniform military and for the Supreme Court justices to be attending this peppermint. Now, back to your question, which is <laughs> the American people who nowadays have 500 channels and not all of them are going to be tuned to watch the State of the Union. Uh, I think what they want to hear is that the president is vigorous and that the president is in charge. The assumption is, I guess, that he's going to run. Let me just say this. If he had already decided not to run, he'd be saying and doing exactly what he's doing now anyway to prevent him becoming a, a premature lame duck. When a, a, a political party renominates, <coughs> excuse me, renominates a president for a second term, the convention chants four more years, four more years. Try this. 
people today could be chanting six more years, six more years. I think that's that's hard to do with a, a man who will be 86 uh, at the end of his next term, if there is such. Uh, George, I want to pick up on a word that you used um, to describe the State of the Union um, as a quote unquote repulsive pep rally by the, <laughs> by the president, which makes me wonder: Are you do you also have a soapbox speech? About the about the response from the minority party, and uh, I'm asking this because Republicans have chosen our newly elected Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who was uh, one of Donald Trump's press secretaries when he was in the White House. She's delivering the Republican response to the State of the Union. Um, your thoughts on the on the opposing party's response, and what do you think we will hear? from Governor Sanders, Huckabee Sanders. Well, she will say that the glass is half empty. And uh, a continental nation that has big problems because it's a big place. And uh, it'll be easy to come up with things that are wrong. Uh, she will be viewed by friends and family. And I'm not sure how many other people. Uh, uh, as the audience leeches away, at the end of this. Uh, when I say repulsive, let me, in a spirit of bipartisan nihilism, say that the de degradation of the State of the Union really began under Ronald Reagan when he put Lenny Skutnik, who had behaved very well after the Air Florida plane crashed into the 14th Street Bridge. And we began the tradition of stalking the galleries with, with uh, exemplary people. Uh, Mr. Trump, as I recall, gave some kind of medal. We don't do honors very gracefully in our, in our republic, but he gave some sort of medal to Rush Limbaugh in the middle of the State of the Union. Um, how, how awful can we get? Well, we shall find out. You know, uh, in, keeping that, George, yeah, in keeping with George, I once promised to vote for any candidate who would deliver a State of the Union in writing, because, of course, the Constitution does not require it be verbal. And these things really are um, a complete uh, trudge. Uh, and all of us uh, in the media get very excited and write all kinds of previews. And 24 hours later, uh, no one remembers anything that was said. Um, so uh, uh, the uh, the president, uh, Mr. Biden, would get uh, a lot of points if he made it really short. That would get people's attention. Nice 15 brief minutes uh, reviewing the economic numbers and off we go. Um, but, you know, it's funny that they picked um, this particular person to respond because it's such a bone to President Trump as if they're still quaking in fear that he might uh, do something to disrupt the party even more than he already has. Um, they Do they have no one who has accomplished anything on the Republican side? Are they so ashamed of people um, who have actually performed some kind of public service or who have governed well? Or do we just not have any of those people? So it's uh, the choice of that particular response um, brings us, I think, to a a new low, but uh, I've been wrong before. I'm sure next year will be even worse. <laughs> um, real quickly, um, there are signs that former South Carolina governor, uh, former UN ambassador under Trump, Nikki Haley, will jump into the race for the Republican nomination for president. How might that scramble the race Trump is running 
and the race we all presume Governor Ron DeSantis will run, George. Well, Nikki Haley has uh, an, an immediate problem with this. She could finish third or even fourth in South Carolina if Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina, decides to run. Uh, Trump and DeSantis have, have strong support in South Carolina. Uh, she's taking, a, a, I suppose, a calculated risk that when she's the first person to announce, she will be the lone target of his of his anger. I I, I think it it's it's a good move on her part because it says I'm really not worried about his his bluster. My hunch is, and it's no more than a hunch, and it may be my wish being fathered to the thought, but I do think that he's going to rapidly lose altitude. Uh, <clears throat> He may have a lock on, say, 28% of the nominating electorate. Therefore, his hope is to be on stage with 10 people. 10 people, his 28% might win. But uh, uh, my, my, again, my hunch is that uh, the, the rest of the gathering field will watch what happens to Nikki Haley after she's in the race. We'll see that there's nothing to fear, and we will be off and running. Jennifer, so, I mean, you know what I was thinking, uh, analogy I was thinking um, as George was finishing up his answer, is Nikki Haley the canary in the coal mine? Are people just going to sit back and wait and see uh, how Donald Trump treats her before they decide to jump in the race? I actually don't think she's that significant. And I don't think Donald Trump is going to spend an awful lot of time on her, quite frankly. He's already figured out that Ron DeSantis is his big competition, and he's already started attacking him. So I don't think she's going to um, really draw all that much ire from him, aside from some snide remarks that she once did promise not to run against him if he was going to be running. In some respects, though, she represents the very sad trajectory of the Republican Party. It was not too long ago that she was the governor of uh, South Carolina, handled some very difficult issues quite well, actually, uh, removal of the uh, the state flag that bore the uh, bars, stripes and bars, uh, handling of the horrible uh, tragedy at the uh, Charleston uh, AME church. Um, and then she endorsed, if you remember, uh, Rubio, who uh, was kind of the mainstream, uh, optimistic, pro-immigration future of the Republican Party in 2016. And then it was all downhill from there. She was sucked into the uh, whirlwind that is Donald Trump. And she has now, uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, dropped any opposition that she's really had to him. Um, she hasn't really uh, continued to maintain a, uh, a line of criticism in the way that uh, people like Asa Hutchinson or people like Larry Hogan have. So I think she's uh, kind of a, a, a sad figure in many respects in the Republican Party. Um, I do think Ron DeSantis is uh, biding his time, and he's probably smart to wait a while. Um, why should he get the full-fledged uh, mm -hmm. Trump treatment? Um, let him stay on the sidelines and continue to build uh, support quietly. Jennifer, I want to switch gears, but stick with you. We've got less than five minutes. We had a, uh, to talk about police reform. You had a column uh, yesterday proclaiming that President Biden needs to lead the effort on police reform. What do you want him to do? Well, I think he needs to do two things. One is to kind of get us out of this silly loop of fund the police, defund the police. Um, the question is what we should be funding. And the federal government does spend a lot of uh, 
bunny on uh, police, um, probably to George's chagrin, um, the states are no longer uh, necessarily completely in charge of uh, public policing. Uh, federal government plays a huge role. So the question is, what do you want the federal government to be doing? What should we be spending our money on? And frankly, there's some impressive um, results in the laboratories of democracy from places like Miami of techniques and training that actually does reduce police shootings, that does uh, reduce um, police uh, deaths um, and either themselves or the people that they are uh, pursuing. And the president should uh, roll out a program that funds these types of programs, that encourages these types of programs. Um, he should make clear that we do have a uh, national problem. It's uh, not simply a few bad apples in one city or another. Um, and that we're a big enough, smart enough, brave enough country to take this problem on and to start doing the things we need to do. Um, and one idea that, frankly, has been used in some cities is to um, end the practice of armed police making traffic stops for innocuous violations like having an expired tag on your card. Um, those send, tend to set the, uh, uh, the, the ground, frankly, for these um, horrible events. Uh, there's a terrible statistic that 58% of these police uh, killings um, start with something as that is a nonviolent incident, um, a traffic stop, um, or uh, interceding with someone who has obvious mental uh, health problems. So there are things the president can do. I think he should, um, as he will almost uh, certainly do, express um, concern for the rate of crime and for people's right to have uh, a sense of security in their own communities. Um, but at the same time, he should say we should be uh, moving forward on things that we know will work um, and uh, invite Congress to join with them. Uh, I think anything else would be seen as um, kind of ignoring um, a problem that is uh, mm -hmm. endemic and very visible and is beginning to erode support for the police. I point to the ABC uh, Washington Post poll that's out today that support in the police is declining. And uh, police, and frankly, police unions, um, who have been a impediment to many of these reforms, should be concerned about that too. They should be getting on board and some reform efforts to try to restore public confidence. Uh, George, we have less than two minutes, but I would love to get your reaction to what Jennifer said, but also I want to put this on the table. The stumbling block to getting the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act um, out of the Senate was over the issue of qualified, Im uh, the elimination of qualified immunity. Why should officers have that shield from accountability? No public figure. Uh, should have that qualified immunity shield. The Cato Institute and some others are, are, are campaigning tirelessly to remove this judge-created doctrine that makes it very difficult to hold public figures, not just uniformed police officers, accountable. But go back to what Jennifer said about the public unions. It is almost impossible to fire for incompetence a public school teacher. It's, it's not an option. It's a career to try and do that. There are 300,000 teachers in California, maybe two a year usually are removed. Now, if you think all but two of those 300,000 are competent teachers, uh, you are mistaken. Uh, in Minneapolis, in the decade before the murder of George Floyd, the police department received 2,600 complaints. There were 12 disciplinary actions taken, the most severe of which was a 40-hour suspension. That is the result of, of the contracts, 
negotiated by the police unions, and they are the heart of the problem. Wow. George Will, Jennifer Rubin, we are completely out of time. As always, thank you both for coming to First Look. Have a great weekend. You too. too. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.